0: Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck.
1: I'm Sean KB. I'm Av Andy.
0: And we are here with our prodigal son, who hath returned to us. I am talking, of course, about super producer Anarcho Mapache. Andy, welcome back. Thank
2: you. I'm back from a two-week tour around the world.
0: Have you uh, two
2: locations around the
1: world. Have you seen any really existing socialism while you were there? Oh, it was it was real and it was spectacular. <laughs> uh, you uh, went to uh, an island ninety miles off the coast of Florida. They always remind us uh, mm-hmm. that was that's Cuba,
0: Habana.
2: right on the doorstep of the
1: heart of imperialism, halfway between Florida and Venezuela. I don't. was it halfway? No, it's not. Oh, I just made that up. Oh my god! Ideologically, it's, perhaps
0: it's actually quite <laughs> topical because I just found out yesterday that um, Elian Gonzalez is 25 years old oh yeah kind of hot and he what, what? Really.
2: he's a bartender he's got a curly mustache <laughs> <laughs> makes mojitos. Look at that
0: fucking hipster yeah and he is maybe a communist um, his only tweet ever was uh, to respond to the nice birthday wish that he got from the president of Cuba. And he said he was going to stay on Twitter so he could, like, follow him and support him.
1: Well, I tell you, with the way that um, the uh, U.S. military machine is ramping up, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, John Bolton send some U.S. troops back to Cuba, mm. take a 25-year-old Elian Gonzalez yeah. and bring him back They're to his They're going to take him <laughs> back,
0: <Yeah>. make <laughs> him live with his Casano relatives yeah. in Miami, like at gunpoint, but the opposite way. They're like, Clinton was wrong. This is where you belong, dude.
2: The day that I went was April 30th, which is when they launched that aborted coup. Right. And Trump, in the midst of it, was like, yeah, we're going to completely blockade Cuba now, which I don't even know what oh, that yeah. means. I, oh, w- yeah. I
1: did think of you when you, when <laughs> they yeah.
2: said that. I like, yeah, I was like, uh, I guess I'm Cuban now.
0: What are they going to do? Like, I,
2: I better make myself comfortable.
0: <laughs> They're going like, to encircle the island with ships to make sure nothing gets in or out.
1: That would be a typical like, uh, blockade. Does that
0: include super producers, though? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, it is an act of war, but I would not put it past them. So, uh, yeah. You made it out, though. The uh, yep. blockade was a bluff. And I saw suck it, John Bolton.
2: I saw the last moments of Mayday because, uh, man, when they tell you to get to Mayday at six a.m., you better get <laughs> to Mayday at six a.m. What, really? So I got there at like seven forty, and it was over. Oh shit! Yeah, mm,
0: Shoes on the other foot now, Mister Punctual. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was possible that it could
2: really be over at, at 8 a.m. But Take a siesta. It is that. super hot there, so it makes sense. Wow.
0: Well,
1: I thought you were going to say it's the last mayday because, um, you know, with the implementation of uh, market reforms and the opening of the – you know, border and everything like that—not border, but allowing foreigners in. They were going to move uh, Workers' Day from May Day to Labor Day in the United States. Really? No. I that thought you were going to say. <laughs>
0: I thought you were going to say it's the last May Day in Cuba because America is just going to wipe it off the map. Oh God, yeah, don't
1: speak happen. that into existence. Uh, anyway, so so um, you you got some interviews in Cuba. Uh, right. You talked to some folks, you went to a conference. Tell us a bit about the trip.
2: So, all right, you're going to hear four interviews on this episode. The first is with uh Isabel Diaz Torres from uh the Centro Social y Biblioteca Libertaria Abra in uh Cuba. It's an anarchist social center in the Laoutun neighborhood of Havana, working-class neighborhood. And it seems to me that in the last few years, maybe last like 10, 15 years with more international um, visitors and and students and also you can get Internet there. It's not so easy or fun, but you people can use the Internet there. There, There's becoming a, a bit of a political awakening around anarchism and Trotskyism, which was repressed in the early 60s. Um, so there is this anarchist social center. The state does not like it. <laughs> hmm. uh, a and they two of their main projects there is that they have um, an initiative in in uh, to support L- LGBT issues and sex worker issues, and they have an ecological group called Gardabasque that so you'll hear about. Uh, but after I visited that week, they tried to have an unpermitted demonstration against homophobia because homophobia is is very rampant in cuba and having an unpermitted demonstration is uh not cool in cuba Mm. um you can't really you can't really even have one you can't even like ask the state to have one you just can't do it it, it's happened but it's it's very it's almost unheard of so did
1: they they asked for a permit for like 9 a.m and the government was like nope can't have it that's too late you don't ask for a <laughs> permit that's okay you, there's no it's not like it's not like Mayday. it's not like New York
3: no okay. Wait, you just so don't do are it. there
0: permitted demonstrations even
2: there's the state initiates demonstrations wow. oh. but like they told me that they want to have a demonstration against like the coup in Venezuela and the state didn't permit it like the, what? the state wow. just wow uh, so you know I don't know all the details of that, but I do know this week they tried to have this demonstration against homophobia and they were arrested. Mm. Uh, several of them were arrested including Isbel who who I interviewed and I think they were. it seemed like they were only arrested for a day or two but I encourage people to read up more about that I'll put links in the show notes um, so after that interview I talked to Simone Rodriguez who's a, a Venezuelan Trotskyist um, about his perspective of the coup and uh, not you know opposing US imperialism and Guido but also opposing Maduro um, and then I flew back to New York for a minute, and then I went to up to Seattle for Red May, and I did two interviews there. One is with somebody who helps make the podcast uh, Resonance Audio, hmm. which is like an anarchist zine podcast that I really like, and they just read zines, um, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: Cool. Contemporary ones or ones from like the 90s? Mostly
2: contemporary, uh, but you know, some classics as well, some Banano and stuff. They they, should like they a...
0: literally read the zines to you?
1: Yeah, it's like an audio it's zine distro. They should have a, they mm. should have a throwback and read the entire Fleas and Lice catalog from like 1995.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, like just <laughs> a 10-hour long like every word of a Slug and Lettuce. Yes. Right. I mean, we've
0: we've done a reading of the Riot Girl Manifesto on this here show, yeah, so. Yeah, we know what it's like to They're read from uh, radical zines.
1: <laughs> They're fellow travelers.
2: Yeah. And the last interview was with Phil Wallstetter, who uh, is the organizer of Red May. And so I talked to him a little bit about Red May and Seattle politics. And uh, you, th- you can't talk to Phil for too long before he tells you about his experiences in Chile in 1973. Wow. He was backpacking mm. when the coup went down. Oh, damn. Shit. Um so that'll be the end of the episode and it's a little bit long but I think there are there's four there're four really interesting people.
1: Cool. So. And the last thing I guess um we should ask before we start these interviews up is this was the first um Trotskyist conference ever in Cuba, is that right or since 1963?
2: Uh yeah, it was the first conference explicitly about Trotsky. The the Trotskyists had a couple conferences in Cuba in like 60 61. Oh, okay. Uh, but, the, but, you know, as soon as the revolution had happened, the PSP, which was the Communist Party, tried to repress them. And there was a brief period when Castro and Guevara supported them hmm. um, because that they, they fought in the revolution. But after the missile crisis, Castro drifted towards the USSR right. and, and put the Communist Party increasingly in power of state security. And that's when the Trotskyists were almost entirely arrested.
1: Wow, so you saw some living history there. That's
2: right. All right,
0: and you were a part of it too, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I gave a presentation. I gave pretty much like a similar presentation at both Red May um, and at the conference. What, what, but you know about like catastrophism and Posadism. Um and the uh, in a uh, in in Cuba, about half the room walked out, uh, <laughs> probably because it was the afternoon and people were getting tired and yeah. hot. But not a lot of engagement with my uh, presentation in Cuba. But at Red May it was a huge success. Oh. Like people were, were psyched. I think that there is mm. some antifada fans in the room, some cool. super soldiers, mm. some prolet cultists.
1: Yeah. Thank you for coming out. Some history weaponizers mm-hmm. perhaps. Shout out. Shout out. All right, good stuff. Well let's check these out.
2: something I did not expect to find in Cuba. It's a Biblioteca Libertaria. And I'm here with one of the organizers of the space. Um, tell me your name and what you do here and what's been going on this weekend at the Biblioteca.
4: Hi, guys. My name is Isabel Diaz-Torres. I'm one of the organizers of this uh, social center here in Havana and also member of the Libertarian... Well, in Spanish, it should be like Taller Libertario Alfredo Lopez, which is like libertarian workshop uh, Alfredo Lopez which was one of the main anarchists in the history of Cuba. Yes well the, the space in fact uh, it's been working for about one year. I mean exactly one year because uh, we have our first uh, birthday in a way today. We, we found it uh, last year in May in, and uh, the idea is to create, it create a like a communitarian space where we can mayor gatherings, organize activities, uh, meet people or you know visitors that come from other countries to to visit us, and also um, most important to work with the community uh, in different projects that we can organize with them so for example we have we have like um, we have a garden where we involve the rest of the or at least part of the neighbors. And uh, we also have, I don't know, like knitting uh, workshops. Um, we make, um, we we have like a like a like a movie. We make films on documentaries, sometimes of di- directly on the street, and sometimes in here, in the at the space here at Abra. Uh So we we are all the time trying to find what the community would need. Uh, what would be interesting for the people here? This is like a neighborhood in the suburbs of our—I mean, s- suburbs—maybe is not the same meaning for <laughs> for the North Americans, but uh, it's, it's not the center of the capital. It's not like the Havana that you see in the pictures and the internet, etc. It's a very poor neighborhood, and that's, this is where we are. And uh, and Taller de frodo López is the like the, the main organization that is working in this in this space right now. is coordinating the activities here, and we've been we exist for about mm, more than I mean almost ten years I would say, almost ten years, and um, it comes from a, a more wide network uh, that was uh, known as Observatorio Crítico. Which was a very wide uh, range of uh, you know left, uh, leftist people here in Cuba. Uh, unfortunately, most of the different uh, projects and organizations that were uh, together in this network are not does, do not exist anymore. Some because some of the activists just left the country or finished the projects or. Or I don't know. I mean, it's it's not working anymore, unfortunately. But you know, the Libertarian group that was member of this network is still active, is, and we are that's why we are um, developing this space. Anyway, we are not uh, like um, this is not a closed space. In fact, most of the people who attend this event that is taking place right now are not really anarchists, and we are not interested in producing. A space only for anarchists. We are a bunch of anarchists, we are very interested in getting connected with the people with, with some kind of radical thinking, with radical proposals about how to organize society, how to deal with the problems in Cuba and in the world, and, and, and we are very interested in people that we get in contact with. Have a very critical perspective, not only about Cuba but also about the international capitalism. So that's pretty much the perspective that we really defend. And mm, I don't know what else. To <laughs> yeah. So th-
2: this weekend, y- I've been. I watched. I went to the, some of the talk yesterday. You were talking about ecology, about queer rights. Um, it's all good. <laughs> i love I like this song. I like Radiohead. you're talking about so this weekend you were talking about ecology, about queer rights, about strikes so it's the the kind of stuff that you'll hear anarchists talking about anywhere in the world but it's it's very interesting to find it in the Cuban context because of course uh Cubans and uh anarchists and trotskyists and uh, anything to the left of the the communist Party was suppressed in the sixties so how did you? Come to have an anarchist space here, and, and what, what is it like today to be an anarchist in Cuba?
4: Yes, uh, well, as I said, we are very few people, so it's very uh, difficult, like thinking ourselves as, you know, excluded from the rest of the leftists in the island, right? So we, uh, we're all, all the time trying to connect with a few people that have a critical perspective. Towards the government and still defend uh, um, a leftist a leftist perspective. So, um, being an anarchist here, it's like from as as I understand it, is trying to produce any kind of project not involved with the government, but not only involved with anarchists, but Anyone with common people and leftist people in general trying to produce a new kind of reality, trying to uh, uh, you know, the Cuban people are so focused on what the government says, what the government proposed, what the rules are, and we want to change that. We want to say, okay, we need to empower ourselves, we want to just produce our own projects we and. Uh, mm, and in a way, trying to, to develop a different uh, logic. In a way, you know, it's, it's given people, the persons here, are very dependent on the government, or used to be very dependent on the government. And we're, we're trying to change that. We're, we're trying to make, uh, mm, for example, giving, give information to people about what's happening in the world. What's happening regarding social movements? What's happening with the left in other countries, mainly in Latin America, and what are they defending? What's what their strikes or uh, parades or march What what is that about? What are war, what are their demands? It's because in Cuba, uh, the government is very focused on saying all the bad aspects of capitalism, but they don't make any like. Um, they don't point the response of people, the response of social classes, of work, of of, of the workers, of you know, of the environmentalists, of feminists, wh- because the people in the world is fighting. I'm completely sure that this world is fucked up, but fu- it's fucked off, up, up? Yeah. up, right? Okay, but. Uh, but there is, the, the, we can see a response. We get, we get, we see some reaction in in workers, in women, in you know, in farmers, and I don't know, everywhere in the world, people is fight fighting against I don't know, uh, mm, ind- these destructive industries, uh, the privatization of water, and that's happening in Kiva as well. And nobody's protesting, nobody knows anything about it. And we want to make people aware of how is people reacting out there in the world. That's why we have our this library here with that have a lot of materials, which is in edit. It's, it's, it's unique here in Cuba, because a lot of comrades that come from other countries bring magazines, papers, and books with their fights. We know they have, they have a, a registry of what, what they have been doing all these years. And, and the Cuban government and the Communist Party is not interested in those f- in those fights. It's only interested in saying that capitalism, capitalism outside, is bad. And they, of course, they don't recognize that the way they are really building here in Cuba is some kind of state capitalism, and very, you know, very related with transnational companies or. Um,
2: And what what does the state think about this space and uh, and this w- this event this weekend?
4: Okay, this is the fourth. This is what we call the Libertarian Spring, uh, and it takes place every year. This is the fourth time we do it every May, and well, I would I don't say. Th- I don't know the government because we don't have any line with government, so we don't know what they think about it. But we do have some sort of line with the with the political police. In fact, I I received like a citation from the police, uh, from political police, uh, state security, two days ago, uh, for an interview, and they uh, of course they don't approve this event. They said that it would be illegal to do it. it. They said it is illegal to have more than a certain number of people uh, gathering together in space. They say that it's illegal for us to receive international comrades you know, people from other countries. Um, in, and they directly uh, threatened me. They said that they, they were going to come for me. They were, they were going to put me in jail, etc. So I know they don't like it but still we do it, and as far as, as, you know, as you can see, yesterday was the first day, today is the second day, and everything has been happening with no problem, everything was okay, so we are, like, uh, confident that we can, we will be able to finish our, this week of uh, events, and nothing would happen, but we have, you know, the word of the, poli- of the political police against us and um, it's uh, yes in a way I'm a little bit afraid for my person uh, and also for the space you know you're never completely secure here you are never completely, sh- here. Uh, are never completely uh, safe here uh, because at any time they will be able to come here intervene this space take everything with them and it would be over so you never know how long it's going to, to last this space, but well it's been for we've been here for one year, working in the community, developing events on the on the on the on this house, and yeah, we have survived w- one year at least
2: so anarchism has a long history in Cuba, uh, as in much of Latin america in the in the workers movement of the tens twenties, and then I believe during the revolution as well. Uh, but it mostly went away. So, how did it reemerge, and when did it reemerge?
4: Well, yes, the Cuban anarchist movement was pretty much anarcho-syndicalist movement. So, pretty much most of the workers here before the revolution, before 1959, were involved with anarcho-syndicalism in a way. In fact, uh, anarchists were members of the f- of, of the struggles of the Movimiento de Julio, and, you know, the Castro movement, and also the movement of the students at the university. So w- they were very, mm, were really important members of the, all those forces that fought against the, the, the dictatorship of Bautista, Machado before, etc. But as you said, that what stopped at the beginning of the revolution. Both anarchists and Trotskyists were, like, eliminated from the, you know, the spectrum of the political spectrum in the island some of them were killed or just sent to prison or sent to exile and this we didn't heard i'm checking about the years like 61, 62 those years and then after that we didn't heard of any anarchist uh, movement anymore uh, we have some references during the eighties of this uh, sabata movement, but we don't have any proof, uh, we, really, we are really not sure that it really existed. Um, but with the uh, with the International School of Medicine that is here in Cuba, there were there's a lot of comrades um, m- from Latin America, coming from Brazil, Peru, Venezuela, uh, Chile, other countries, coming to Cuba. And they brought, again, the ideas of Trotskism and anarchism. And then one of our comrades, which is Mario Mario Castillo, he was first very attracted to Trotskist ideas. He was like a Trotskist here in Cuba. And after that, he met some comrades who were anarchists. And finally, that's uh, the perspective that he, he chose. And then he was very involved with, different projects, uh, like contra cultural projects, uh, artistic, and also political projects here in Cuba, uh, when he was student and after, w- after he graduated, and then, uh, eventually, we created, as I mentioned before, the Observatorio Critico, and uh, we were working very hard at Observatorio Critico with all different groups and people uh, who were working, like, in different areas like environment or mm, education even we have like in some sort of party was the socialismo participativo democratico uh, de- democratic and par- participative uh, socialism participatory, participatory exactly yeah yes uh, yeah and they were they were also members of a of a Observatorio Critico, but um, we didn't have like a real anarchist group. Then we decided to to create one. And that's the moment where we uh, joined the ideas, because at that point I was, not, I was not considering myself as an anarchist. I was just a member of Observatorio Critico. But then when I see the different perspective of my comrades, the anarchist perspective was the one that I felt was more... Uh, Close to me so i i joined i joined the uh, joined, uh, joined the anarcho the anarchist group is the, the me uh, my boyfriend and i both Jimmy rock and i we both joined uh, the anarchist group and um, and it that took place about i would say almost ten years it would be like eight years i guess or something like that eight years. And we were, most of the people who were working in Observatorio Critico, you know, the people who were really organizing activities and moving the whole network, in a way, were the anarchists. And, uh, but as as I mentioned, the rest of the different groups, not all of them, but some of them, decided to to emigrate or just to uh, quit, in a way. But right now, from Observatorio Crítico, we have the project Guarda Bosques, which is an environmentalist uh, project. It's the Libertario, Alfredo López, which is the anarchist one. There is also one group. Is this one that you met today? Is um, I don't know if you saw the, the film because uh, it's a um, the um, this this uh, educational project Trencito, that they work in the community. With children and grown-ups and with games, that they were also members of a libertarian critical. So there, there's a few different groups that still exist, but most of of, of, of the groups uh, are not uh, here anymore. Mm, and then, well, we decided, okay, this is the chance now to really work in the, on the line of anarchism. But, but as I said again, it's not like, I mean, we are just right now in the group. We had about six seven people or something like that so very few people so we are not stupid enough to say to think that uh, seven people is going to make the all the changes that we did so yeah we, we received all, com- all kind of comrades people friends here in cuba and trying to get like a like a, a really different left in cuba
2: one thing you told me about that you did here that really surprised me was you had a meeting between a Santeria priest and an animal rights group. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, sure. It's, it's quite unique, and unique here in Cuba. I don't know in other places, but in Cuba, it's, uh, it's not, some, not something that happens often. And it's, uh, yeah, we decided because, you know, one of the members of the community that is working with us in at the garden is a Santeria priest. And uh, we have we had a very good connection, and I also I am also member of a, of a animal rights uh, group, and we talk about it. We talk about it, the topic, the subject, and we also met another priest who was proposing like a different kind of practice, not using the sacrifice of sacrifice of animals on the rituals. And I when I, when I discovered that, I found so excited about it. Because I saw a chance to uh, promote that idea of not sacrificing not, not, not sacrificing animals for the for the rituals here, and so we we decided to organize the event and it was quite good. the conversation was very good even we even ended with a group of, of common tasks to do, like promoting this idea of non not sacrificing or not only not sacrificing but also some kind of rational thinking about you don't need to sacrifice that amount of animals, you can you can use less animals, you can use less plants, you can use like for example like collective ceremonies. So you can use you can use only one animal for I don't know, ten people. It's different than using ten animals for ten people. So that kind of ideas Maybe it can sound like cruel for some people, but for us it's, it's an advance. Because you, we need to have a dialogue with that tradition as well, with that culture. And I, I think it was very, it was worth it. Wor- because, you know, that, that uh, religion has a very deep root on on nature on wild in a way so oh, the whole the whole cosmovision is related with nature wild you know the elements um, the rivers the water the fire earth so it's quite beautiful all the stories that they tell as part of the religion and so I, I think they have some sort of sensibility that could um, that that. that could produce a conversation, a dialogue with uh, animal rights defenders. and So it was super cool.
2: Um, so to close it out, I think a lot of the listeners in the United States, I mean, this is kind of, you know, how I think without knowing much about Cuba, uh, sort of look to Cuba as an example of someplace there was a revolution and have some idealization of, of the revolution here and, uh, you know, believe that this is a socialist society where people are taken care of and people aren't rich, because, but that's because of the embargo. And This is, this is what I think leftist uh, U.S. Americans think. So, I guess, what do you think that our listeners in the U.S. should know about what Cuba's like and what the government's like?
4: Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's difficult just to define a project or a country after 60 years, you know, it's not the same Cuba that we lived during the first decades of the revolution, and what the Cuban that developed during the 90s, during the crisis of the 90s, of the collapse of the Soviet Union, or the Cuban that is existing right now. So there are different, and I just mentioned three different times, but there are you, you we can see different different uh, stages of the development of the Cuban revolution. So first of all, what I Ask people from other countries is that they need to update of what's taking place here. Some people don't even know that the, the, the Fidel Castro is not here, and some some people don't know that Raúl Castro is not the president, or even that Fidel Castro died. So they need to update. Now we have a new, completely new different uh, president right now, who was not, who, no, who did not fought in the Sierra Maestra, at Sierra Maestra, and uh, he he didn't expose his life for this revolution, so that makes a difference. Uh, first of all, the the second thing is that in this process of trying to get updated, what's happening here in Cuba, you need to understand all the uh, how would you say like concessions concessions uh, that, that 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 the direction of the Communist Party has made. In order just to survive in the pow- and and remain in power, hearing. So when you see all the different, you know, measures, the different guidelines of the Communist Party, or well, in Spanish we say that lineamientos del partido. When you say that, it's like okay, in in which of those guidelines they are constructing socialism or capital or, or communism? You wouldn't find any any clue there, because most of the of of those guidelines are focused on. Opening uh, the market for international investors in Cuba, um, not protecting workers, not allowing the workers to uh, control the acti- you know the labor activities, or not not allowing them to organize themselves by themselves. So how can you build communists or socialists? Not building it. There's no way you can we can get there. So that's really pretty much what's happening here. And, and of course, people is not aware of that because when you, people just read, like you know, the the headlines of the newspapers saying, for example, that the government, the president said that uh, what we have in Cuba is like continuity of the revolution, but that's not enough. You need you need to to really know what's happening here. Uh, yeah, and of course, I think there are some there's some like topics or ideas which are fixed in the you know in in the, in the imaginary of people about what's Cuba. For example, Cuba is like a green, have a green agriculture, or we have no environmental impact. Uh, You know, the economic activities in Cuba has no environmental impact. All those are lies. As an environmentalist, I'm really concerned what's happening here in Cuba, because the government is opening all, you know, all these areas like, you know, like natural resources, Reserves you know natural reserves here in Cuba, they open that to foreign companies to come here and you know drill or develop open mines to extract whatever minerals they want, and all that's taking place away from the eyes of people because it's taking place inside these protected areas, these reserves, and people they don't know what's happening really happening there, and it's and what you see, for example. There's an institution here who is who, that is in charge, of, like in protected environment, and they are trading with goods. With, you know, for example, very very rare woods, flamingos, or crocodiles, or turtles, or horses, cocks, you, fighting cocks. Ex- exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know that word. Could mean sound something else, <laughs> and. Uh, and how, how can how can that be possible? You know, and that's what they do because they are in charge of in charge of protecting the environment and they are trading with it. So that's part of uh, reality in here in Cuba. So that's why I ask uh, comrades in the world that I know. I know that they, you know they would need like a, some sort of paradigm. They need something in what you believe. But come on, let's go beyond that. If you need a god, okay find the Bible but don't don't look towards Cuba because I don't think right now Cuba is an example maybe the history of revolution could be an example but not the reality of Cuba right now <laughs>
5: Pues para un viaje me basta con mis piernas, viajo sin equipaje. Más de una mano en lo oscuro me conforta y más de un paso siento marchar conmigo. Pero si no tuviera,
4: no importa, sé que hay muertos que alumbran los caminos.
2: I am here live at the lunch break of the first Trotsky conference in Havana, Cuba. And there's not a lot of time for me to to talk to all of the hundreds of incredible speakers here. But I wanted to make sure I at least talked to one, Simone Rodriguez. Uh, He's a Venezuelan writer. Um, and we had a, a program a couple weeks ago where we talked about the potential coup in Venezuela. And um, in the last week, we've seen an attempted coup and probably it's, that situation isn't over. So uh, I want to talk with Simone a little bit about how, how he s- understands the situation in Cuba and how we can think about it, certainly opposing the foreign policy of Trump, but also not supporting the regime of Maduro. So, do you want to tell me um, just a little bit about yourself and your work?
6: Yes, thank you very much for the opportunity to um, to reach an audience of uh, left-wing activists and um, uh, grassroots activists in, in general in, in the U.S., uh, because I, th- I think it's very important um, in order to to properly understand the situation we have in Venezuela, to to listen to voices of activists and uh, people in the labor movement, people who are uh, participating in in environmental struggles, basically similar struggles to the ones, uh, the social movements in general in the rest of Latin America and in the U.S. are uh, advancing. So, uh, first of all, I would define that uh, I am from a party which is called uh, Partido Socialismo y Libertad, or uh, Socialism and the Freedom Party, which is a left opposition uh, party. Therefore, the, the perspective I will provide is uh, that of, uh, of activists who struggle against capitalism, try to, uh, to, to build a, a socialist Uh, perspective and uh, revolutionary organization in the context of a country that, although it is capitalist, it has uh, a government that proclaims to be socialist. And also we opposed uh, intervention by U.S. imperialism. Uh, Concretely, we we opposed the economic sanctions, we opposed the threats of uh, military intervention, And we opposed, as we did publicly the 30th of April, we opposed this coup attempt uh, by these politicians that are actually guided and led by by Trump's government. So that would be like the the first things I would like to to make clear in order for people who listen to me to have a clearest perspective on from what standpoint I will be speaking. So let me just ask the question that I think a lot of listeners might be
2: thinking Um, If you're from this socialist party, why do you oppose uh, a socialist government, a revolutionary socialist government in Venezuela?
6: Yes, um, that's a common um, misconception people have. And it's um, understandable because of two main reasons. One, the uh, right-wing opposition says that we have uh, socialism in Venezuela and that all of the problems that uh, we have are a consequence of socialism being implemented in in Venezuela and also we have a very powerful uh, government propaganda which proclaims to be building socialism but if you live in Venezuela and you have to face the real and cruel reality of having to try to survive with $5 a month wages. And if you try to build a union, you'll get either fired or persecuted. Uh, Even for being a member of a union, we have the case of Rodney Alvarez, a worker that has been eight years in jail without a trial, just for uh, belonging to a union that was uh, fighting for better wages and better labor conditions. Or if you fight against corruption, uh, you can have a a situation like that of Alcedo Mora, he's an activist who was forcefully disappeared, a left-wing revolutionary activist in my hometown of Mérida who was disappeared because of these anti-corruption activities. Uh, Or you can uh, know the the case of Sabino Romero, he was an indigenous leader of the Yucpa people in the west of the country near the northern border with uh, Colombia. He was f- first jailed between 2009 and 2011 for uh, more than a year and a half for defending the right of uh, his people to land and after he was freed because mobilization was very important nationwide, uh, he, the, the persecution did not stop and finally he was murdered by uh, government uh, police in the municipality of Machiques where he was living so we have all of the uh, typical situations of persecution in uh, capitalistic governments in Latin America uh, very backwards uh, semi-colonial capitalism where uh, big multinational oil companies are looting the oil even US companies like Chevron Um, Also, the the gold mining, the the Chavista government gave away 12% of the territory of our country. Uh, This is a territory um, uh, larger than the country of Portugal, uh, (laughs) twice the size of the Dominican Republic. I mean, we're talking about a big uh, extension of land. Two big, big uh, destructive uh, mining companies like Barrick Gold, uh, basically Canadian uh, company, Gold Reserve, also Canadian, Chinese and Russian interests. So, uh, when, when you examine closely, beyond the propaganda, beyond the fog of of misinformation, the type of social and economic relations we have in Venezuela, you, you have to conclude that they are capitalist and. That therefore, uh, there is, uh, it is justified to build a socialist revolutionary opposition to a government which uh, represses uh, the people and which also applies these capitalistic, uh, very semi-colonial capitalistic uh, policies. So y- you, c- you consider yourself a part of a revolutionary party.
2: How does the revolution that you envision differ from the so-called Bolivarian revolution?
6: Well, uh, the, um, the, politi- the political process which started in uh, 1989, which is nine years before Chavismo came to power. Uh, it's a very progressive, very important uh, process of popular mobilization. In 1989, we had the Caracasso uprising, And after that, the main bourgeois political parties were basically in in decadence. They they did not respond in any way to to popular demands and therefore went into political and moral bankruptcy. That's the conditions that allowed for this new uh, phenomenon that was Chavismo to emerge... Uh, however, this is a government that is um, similar to other nationalistic uh, Latin American governments like uh, Torrijos in Panama or Velasco Alvarado in Peru or the first government of Perón in Argentina. It's not completely new. Or perhaps Cárdenas in Mexico. And these are uh, capitalistic and uh, bourgeois governments that have uh, certain uh, confrontations with U.S. imperialism Uh, We side, of course, uh, with uh, the correct and just demands of, of the Venezuelan people in these confrontations. But also we have no confidence in that a national bourgeoisie will be able to deliver a transformation into socialism. What do we propose that is radically different from what the Bolivarian bourgeoisie is doing? Well, We, for one thing, we think that uh, the oil industry should be in the hands of the Venezuelan state and the Venezuelan people, not in the hands of big multinational companies like Chevron who are looting the Venezuelan oil. Also, we think that uh, this uh, Arco Minero del Orinoco or uh, Orinoco Mining Arc, which uh, is a, a very large portion of the country given away to gold mining, well, the, this is a project that is very destructive and should not be uh, pursued. We think that wages should uh, be decent and allow for the working class to, to survive in, in, in really uh, through their labour and not have to go out of the country. More than 3 million people have fled uh, the country in these last years uh, because of this uh, total economic destruction. We think that uh, the foreign debt which has been uh, contracted in in an illegitimate way uh, should not be paid. We we do not recognize as legitimate the foreign debt that the Venezuelan regime has acquired because also by paying this foreign debt this has had a terrible economic uh, consequence for Venezuela. Uh, More than 80 billion dollars have been paid in the last five years at the expense of cutting the imports, even basic imports like food and medicines, creating really a catastrophic economic uh, situation. And uh, what we would say is that uh, this money should not be used to pay the vultures of the financial markets in Wall Street while people are starving. Also, we would say that it's necessary to do a land reform in order for peasants to start producing food. Venezuela has a lot of land, but mostly improductive. And uh, there's no reason for us to, have to depend on, on food imports, really. Uh, so th- those are some of the things that we would uh, uh, differ with the Venezuelan government. Uh, Also, we advocate, obviously, uh, freedom for for the unions to to organize, to have their assemblies, to elect democratically their leaders, and these are uh, rights of the working class that are being uh, crushed right now.
2: So I think the the political question that always comes up around opposing a left-wing government, uh, whether or not they're legitimately left or revolutionary or what have you, is do you enter a united front with them to defend them against imperialism, or do you attempt to oppose that, uh, impose imperialism and the government independently of a united front? And I think that's a question that always comes down to the particularities of the situation. So what does it look like for you and your organization, your left opposition, uh, to face both the... the the misery of Venezuela right now, the crime, the poverty, uh, the, the oppression of the government, but then also face down this impending coup if not invasion from the US, Brazil or Colombia?
6: Well, uh, we don't have to, to be completely original and, and invent uh, really a new methodology because this is a situation that has been confronted by revolutionaries ...in many other countries, in many other uh, moments of history. For example, opposing uh, the Iraq invasion uh, by George Bush uh, government in 2003... ...did not imply to support uh, Saddam Hussein and to uh, say praise him as a socialist or as as a revolutionary... ...or to deny the crimes he committed against the Kurdish people or his oppression of work, or Iraqi workers or for example the opposing the Panama invasion against uh, Manuel Noriega, which, which uh, all, all of the left did did not imply to say that Manuel Noriega was a socialist or a revolutionary so one thing is that we can be faithful to the truth and also oppose imperialism, Th- those are not things that are divorced in any way And in concrete uh, political terms, to be anti-imperialist in Venezuela uh, implies uh, also to be very critical of the government policies. Maybe people uh, don't know, because mainstream media will not say it, but Nicolás Maduro paid uh, more than half a million dollars to uh, Trump's inauguration ceremonies through a company which is called CITGO which is owned by the Venezuelan government. Um, not, not a very anti-imperialist uh, thing to do. But not only that, he also paid lobbies uh, which are linked to to the Trump administration, thousands of dollars. He also paid for this uh, uh, freedom over Texas, 4th of July celebrations in, in uh, Houston, so this has been the government that has to uh, try to, pers- to portray itself as anti-imperialist while giving away the oil, giving away the land, giving away everything, even, even uh, putting in money for, for these very terrible things. And so as anti-imperialists we, we need to pursue an anti-imperialist policy of uh, the, the, the main things in, in Venezuela like uh, the oil industry. Uh, also, in, in the um, more recent context of uh, the sanctions, which, which we then repudiate, uh, the oil sanctions against Venezuela, the response of the Venezuelan government was to to put up signatures, to, to tell people to, to sign against this. Well, uh, maybe an opposition party like us, which does not have a state, does not uh, have a lot of resources, can... Uh, do such a campaign, but for a government to to not uh, take any serious measure against uh, the, U- the U.S. imperialism to deter these aggressions is also something that uh, very clearly shows the, the limitations of the Chavista bourgeoisie. The, what is the strategy of the Chavista government? Is to rely on the military. They say that the military are socialist, that the military are nationalistic. And uh, we don't agree at all. The the military in Venezuela was most of it trained. The high commands had been trained in the School of the Americas, for example. The the defense minister went to Fort Benning to to receive uh, counterinsurgency courses. So these are uh, uh, military with a very reactionary mindset, only that for opportunistic reasons they they proclaim to be chavistas or, or bolivarians. But really, uh, the Venezuelan people cannot trust this very repressive and corrupt military. Only we can rely on our own autonomous mobilization and organization. And therefore, uh, although the the coup uh, attempt in in the 30th of April failed, it's uh, not the the last attempt at a power grab that we will have. And uh, the way to confront it is for uh, really autonomous mobilization of the working class and the government, by repressing the workers, by restricting the freedoms of the the Venezuelan workers, is uh, playing against the possibility of such a mobilization. So, what
2: does this autonomous movement look like in Venezuela? How would you rank the size of the left opposition? and, And what did they do specifically on a day like April 30th when... All sides were saying, come out to the streets.
6: Well, we, uh, the, the PSL, um, Freedom and Socialist Party, have a uh, participation in the in the oil union. Our comrade, Jose Bodas, is the secretary general of the Oil Workers Federation of Venezuela. We also have uh, comrades like uh, Orlando Chirino, who was a presidential candidate in 2012, who is a um, uh, uh, workers' uh, leader with uh, a lot of prestige. There are also other left wing uh, opposition organizations like uh, Maria Socialista, for example, who came out of the official uh, party, the PSV, in 2016, and also uh, agree on, on uh, a lot of points regarding the necessity of having a workers' and left wing alternative. And, well, at the level of of, uh, unions, there's, for example, the health workers' union of the capital city of Caracas, which is called Sirtra Salud, Distrito Capital, uh, with a a comrade uh, who is independent, but he's uh, from the left opposition as well. He's called uh, Tony Navas. So there are a lot of uh, union activists, uh, youth organizations, uh, activists, and also political parties like ours and, and others which have this independent position. Um, really, we, we try to, to build up on that autonomy as, as a perspective for uh, a, a political alternative, although we have to say that because the workers' movement has been crushed by the government, uh, it's not, no, not a coincidence that we have a $5 monthly wage that re- uh, expresses the reality that the workers' movement has been hit very hard by the government. Um, We we campaign around things like uh, trying to get uh, workers who are political prisoners, like uh, Rodney Alvarez, out of jail. We also advocate, uh, in the case of the solidarity from leftist activists and organizations around the world, to oppose U.S. sanctions and to oppose these uh, threats. Really, the, the coup attempt of the 30th of April very quickly uh, dissolved into nothing. It was very clear from the start that uh, an attempt by 20 soldiers to take a uh, military airport was uh, really a bluff. It, it wasn't, uh, I mean, uh, 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 any serious um, attempt at, at uh, military confrontation. So, in, in that, um, in that uh, situation, we, we rejected this by, by a statement. And uh, had the, the situation progressed, we would have done other things. But really, all we had time to do was uh, reject it uh, uh, publicly. And what do you think it would look like
2: in Venezuela if there was a successful coup or there was some sort of external invasion? What do you, I mean, no one can know for sure what would happen. But what, what do you think
6: is reasonable to predict? The situation is degenerating into a very chaotic uh, crisis, and therefore it's uh, hard to know. Also, the U.S. government is uh, very erratic and, and uh, has its own internal crisis. So it's hard to predict. However, we see symptoms of uh, the, the U.S. government really preferring Uh, to support a reactionary coup inside Venezuela rather than invade. It seems very clear from the Lima Group uh, uh, statements and from the statements of uh, Trump himself, they would uh, really really prefer to to either have that uh, way out or to negotiate with the Chavista military, which they say they have done, and which the defense minister of Venezuela confirmed, that there, there had been... Uh, exchanges and and communications between the Chavista military and the U.S. government. They would prefer a negotiated way out or either to co-opt the the Chavista military into a coup. Um, Of course, we we oppose this, and for us, the only progressive way out and the only way out of this crisis that would be consistent with the the right to self-determination of the Venezuelan people is for the Venezuelan people to mobilise and to impose uh, the democratic rights that are right now uh, completely absent of the political reality of our country. We, we only trust in uh, really the, the from below up the mobilisation of the workers and the popular communities, and we think it is possible for that to happen. We have seen uh, in the days of the massive blackouts that we had in April. A spontaneous mobilizations of the working class people and the, the communities like the, the barrios as they are called in Venezuela. So it's not impossible to have a generalized mobilization, a spontaneous mobilization. Of course uh, there are uh, innumerable uh, uh, difficulties but we, we, that, that's the, what, what we bet on for, for this mobilization to grow and to become decisive. So... You say you've been to Cuba before. Um,
2: I think y- you were here quite a while ago. How do you, how do you think? Uh, and Cuba is also a country that has, you know, ongoing sort of economic problems as a result of being blockaded. For you know, it's having a, a communist government.
6: What are, what's the situation like in Cuba compared to Venezuela today? The situation is very different. We have hyperinflation imp- in Venezuela because of a policy implemented by Maduro, which consisted of restricting imports to pay foreign debt and also uh, creating a huge mass of money, of, of uh, Venezuelan currency, which has really no, uh, no, no relation to the circulation needs of the Venezuelan economy. So those two basic uh, policies created hyperinflation and the total destruction of the wages. Um, nothing similar is happening currently in Cuba. Also, uh, there, Venezuela is a, an oil based economy which had huge, huge uh, income in the last decade and it was completely uh, plundered, basically. I mean, Venezuela had the highest capital. Uh, fleeing um, in, in relation to the size of the economy in those years. It's cal- the, the, there are calculations that are around $300 billion to $400 billion went out of the country in around a decade. So it's a huge mass of money that was really plundered. And then we had the, the tragedy that going out of a huge uh, oil bonanza, we were already in a crisis and the crisis became much worse uh, in Venezuela in the, the recent years. Also, there, there's a the difference that Venezuela, uh, the bourgeoisie was never confiscated, was never expropriated. Although we had these uh, very bombastic uh, announcements by Chavez that he was expropriating uh, companies, really those expropriations were paid And they were paid through foreign debt, I mean, the banks, the the big companies that were bought by the Venezuelan government, that meant paying billions and billions of dollars uh, to these companies. So uh, nothing similar to to the origins of the Cuban uh, revolution happened there. I mean, we didn't kick out the equivalent of United Fruit in Venezuela, which the equivalent would be Chevron uh, Texaco company. We didn't kick it out. Uh, 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 to the contrary, we, we gave it for 40 years uh, concessions to exploit Venezuelan oil. So the, uh, I wouldn't draw uh, parallelisms on the economic uh, arena between Cuba and Venezuela. I can think of one parallel. Both countries like baseball a lot.
2: So, it, and I know this because Hugo Chavez, when he was elected president in uh, 1999 throughout the first pitch at Shea Stadium at a Mets game and he was apparently very popular with Venezuelan players including second baseman Edgardo Alfonso who was like my hero when I was a teenager. So what I'm asking is do you think there's going to be some sort of
6: failed socialist revolution in Puerto Rico? (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll comment on uh, a difference uh, also Um, is that uh, the the crisis started before there was anything similar to a blockade we can say that after the January oil sanctions there's something similar to to a blockade against Venezuela but really the crisis started in 2014 and these sanctions were only applied in January of this year there were some financial sanctions the second half of 2017 but nothing compared to to the uh, Cuban embargo or or blockade uh, as it's called um regarding the joke, I will uh, <laughs> skip it
2: <laughs> well i don 't appreciate you dodging my question it 's a very serious question, but thanks a lot for talking and let our listeners know how they can get uh, more of this kind of information in English.
6: Yes, well, thank you again for the opportunity. Hopefully, this will be uh, inciting um, a renewed interest in in uh, knowing more about Venezuela. We are participating in a broad-based project which is a web page in English about Venezuela. The the address is uh, venezuelanvoices.org and uh, there you can find uh, several different um, analyses, articles, writings on Venezuela by uh, basically independent and left opposition sources. Uh, that would be a, a recommendation and also well to, to look up uh, Venezuelan left-wing uh, uh, publications and uh, use some, some uh, translation app, um, it's, a, it's a good thing also to, to do. But also, uh, to, to end, I would uh, renew the call to, to be very strongly opposed to all of the reactionary Trump policy against uh, the Venezuelan people but also to to put yourself in the shoes of of the Venezuelan workers and the Venezuelan people who are suffering uh, a situation that is not a hundred percent the fault of the U.S. There is also a responsibility on a repressive capitalist and corrupt government, uh, which is it's part of the reality. And therefore, to be really in solidarity with the Venezuelan people, you have to to assume their perspective. Uh, that's that what I would ask of activists and the people concerned with the, the fate of the Venezuelan people. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias, Simón Rodríguez, y buena suerte.
4: Si quiere tomar rom pero sin Coca-Cola. A Cuba, Cuba, que Cuba iré. Si quiere trabajar en la caña de azúcar. Cuba, a Cuba, que Cuba iré. En un barquito se va al baile. A Cuba, a Cuba, que Cuba iré. Si quiere conocer a Martí y a Fidel. A Cuba, a Cuba, que Cuba iré.
2: So I'm back in the United States after my trip to Cuba, but I'm not done traveling. I'm currently on the road to see Baskar Sankara talk at Red May. Let's not talk about Baskar right now. Let's stay on the subject of anarchism. I've got a... uh, someone here who produces a really great uh, podcast of anarchist zines and books that I think everybody should check out. It's called Resonance. Would you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the podcast?
5: I am Amalthea and I help produce this podcast called Resonance, um, an anarchist audio distro. We make zines and, uh, and books into audio content. Um, And we've been going for four years now, and we have around like a 100 different publications up on our website. What
2: are some of the titles or some of the episodes that you've done?
5: One thing that I'm particularly excited about that we have put out um, and that we're kind of coming to an end is this series of um, The Unquiet Dead, which is... um, we're releasing it a chapter at a time, but it's a book sort of about fascism, mythology, and um, a lot along the lines of essentialism as being a uh, this kind of common common theme of a lot of fascist uh, currents. Yeah, we have a lot of kind of like insurrectionary classics, Alfredo Bonanno. I guess one that I that I really like is we have this one that's it's an audio version of this piece from these interviews with these Syrian anarchists, um, who are in a, you know, have fled Syria since, um, but they kind of talk about the, the, like, revolution in Syria from insurrection into revolution and then into civil war and kind of how their engagement, um, what their engagement looked like throughout that, and it, I think, was a really, I think was a really interesting, um, and kind of like a piece that I don't know yeah it was was a book that really challenged some of how I think about conflicts and um kind of the the like the big quote from the book is like um or one of my big takeaways was that they had these posters that they circulated that were like choose Molotov not Kalashnikov to keep it in an insurrectionary and not a civil war so another zine that I'm really excited about um, or set of zines um, is we've had a few of these zines recorded by uh, Margaret Killjoy um, that are some of her short fiction um, and kind of some sci-fi and horror type stuff um, which I think fits really well with the like audio medium to have something that's like a narrative um, and I think it's something that like, I feel really excited about the work that she's doing writing it, but I also, like, um, a reality for me is I'm, I'm not going to read a ton of anarchist fiction unless it's in audio form. Um, and so I'm excited to sort of bring some of that, because I think, um, yeah, like, I think sometimes ideas are easier to digest when they're in audio form, and sometimes ideas are easier to digest when they're in fiction form, and I think fiction can can say things more eloquently sometimes than nonfiction
2: so you said that a lot of the stuff that you record that you record are zines Mm -hmm. now for our younger listeners what is or was a zine
5: yeah so i guess it hadn't even occurred to me that zines are now kind of out of fashion um but a zine is just basically just short for magazine um but it has taken on this kind of like subcultural uh, connection with kind of punk and Riot girl and, and that whole um, history where a zine is often um, kind of like handmade or typed on a typewriter and then photocopied but then it, it kind of has become a whole form of um, anarchist propaganda and kind of like this whole thing of having these short maybe like between 12 and 60 pages or something pamphlets um, that are a lot of how anarchists have done, like, political education for, I mean, probably since the printing press. Yeah, I think it's a... It became, like, the
2: anarchist media uh, of choice because it was, you know, it's expensive to print a newspaper or or books. There's only a few people that could really afford it. And there's these sort of underground... Networks of there were there weren't just anarchists and punk scenes. There were all kinds of zines. It's just like how people who are you know not like outside the mainstream culture expressed themselves before the internet. Right. Um, it's
5: just like a, a way to self-publish really cheaply, um, and especially if you have sort of some willingness to um, to like find a, a way to to scam your printing um, and to do printing at like a university or some other find some other way to do it for free. You can. You can self publish um and yeah distribute ideas um that maybe wouldn't wouldn't get taken up by a publisher or something like that,
2: yeah, exactly, but then the internet came along and said, "Zines, what's the point? Just have a blog wordpress dot com slash anarchy and that's you know it didn't kill the zine, but it turned it into more of a boutique item, and now i I notice that much more popular than zine fairs and like the zine section at a store. There'll be art books which are just photos and illustrations and usually really fucking sucks. Um, but even that I think people are reading less of even blogs and, uh, and, and uh, IGD and uh I D D and such. They're listening to more podcasts. Podcasts is where it's at. So Resonance takes the zine and puts it in your podcast app because you're, you're too lazy to read the, the zine. Like, yeah. you don't appreciate you had to walk 10 miles in the snow to the info shop to pick up the zine. Now it just goes to you immediately.
5: I think kind of part of the motivation for the project started because we were kind of me and a number of my friends and comrades were engaged in kind of like a, one of those high points of struggle Um, where we lived where it was like we were kind of in the streets a lot and kind of trying to to do a lot and we were finding that we really were needing to do political education on like a couple things Um, and so we did what we knew how to do we like went and printed just hundreds of these zines on the subject that were these conversations we kept having and they were were sort of conversations about respectability and um, representation and kind of the manipulations that people make of privilege politics Um, and so there's this this zine Taking Sides um, that we were really trying to push um, and um, or no it wasn't called Taking Sides that's the the book that has come out of it since but it's it was um, it was called Revolutionary Solidarity Um, uh, uh, what was it something for accomplices a reader for accomplices and um, is that the uh, accomplice is not allies type stuff. Accomplices not allies is one of the, the texts in that, uh, in that compilation. Um, but we were sort of like, this, this zine is saying the things that we keep getting into arguments with people about in the streets, how can we get this idea out there? Um, and like how can we kind of like, instead of having this conversation again and again, or in addition to having the conversation again and again, kind of like promote put these ideas out into the world? Um, and that's on, on one walk home from a demo one night, um, me and another person were sort of like, I was like, well, I'm not going to read it. If you, if you read it, I'll figure out how to edit it. Um, and we can, we can make it into an audio zine. Um, and that sort of like started this role of, um, of making all these audio zines. Um, and you know. Now I look back on that um, text. I still love the text, but the audio zine. I'm like, oh god, the audio quality is terrible. Like, and the I should have mixed music into it. And but um, but it was it was a great start, and I think it and and I think it did reach people who wouldn't have it wouldn't have reached otherwise. And I know part of my impetus for it was I was like, I don't I want a project like this to exist because I don't read most of the zines that my friends are. Are throwing around and saying like oh you really should read this essay or you really should read this or um because I'm you know don't have a ton of free time to to read but I do have a lot of time where I'm at work or I'm like doing dishes or something like that and I can be listening to a podcast you know it's the same reason why people listen to podcasts but this like I think the cool thing about having it be something in text that's in a podcast form is it, like, allows people who, like, consume one medium exclusively to communicate with other people who ex- consume a different medium exclusively.
2: The way I like to listen to resonance audio is I like to get high and go to the gym. And I don't do anything too complicated at the gym when I'm stones uh, for safety reasons, yeah, but no, I'll... But I'll I'll bench press. That's fairly straightforward. And I'll listen to some Bonanno, some you know, some more contemporary texts of insurrectionary anarchism. Yeah. Now the reason why I think it's a good project is like Rev Left is doing. A, have you listened to Rev Left? Uh,
5: once in a while, I have. Yeah.
2: So Brett is doing a really good job of y- using that platform. Um, it's a pretty popular show of of educating his audience about like Marxism Leninism. You know, reading some texts, uh, summarizing the texts and up- updating it to contemporary stuff. Um, and also, you know, I- I've seen like some anarchists get kind of mad at at their platform because they do have so much uh, Marxist line stuff. But, I mean, he's just using the medium to spread his politics and anarchists and wh- whatever other tendency can do the same thing. So that's why I really am glad that Resonance is doing what it's doing. Also, the Crime Think podcast does a really great job with that stuff. And I like to think we, you know, we've got our own tendency as well here at the Anti Fada. What are some other podcasts that you would recommend uh, for listeners interested in anarchism and related subjects?
5: Um, I'm a huge fan of the Crime Think podcast, though it's kind of wrapping up. Right now the, the podcast is doing... Um, uh, also doing an audio book um, of their their borders book, uh, no wall they can build. Um, but I'm yeah, huge huge fan of them. Um, uh, I think the final straw um, was one of our kind of inspirations to start. They've really been at it, doing um, primarily kind of more like radio, but um, it's also as a uh, distributed as a podcast um, that I think do has been at it for a long time, um, and uh, yeah, the IGD cast is great. Um, there's there's honestly a ton of like I feel like podcasting is kind of hitting this like huge moment of like explosion um, where there's just so many anarchist podcasts where like when Resonance started there was like barely any it's pretty exciting um but there's also like more than I can keep in my brain um and uh, a lot of them are you can check out the channel zero podcast network there's a lot of stuff on there
2: so how can Listeners, check out Resonance.
5: You can go to ResonanceAudioDisco.org uh, and, you know, uh, it would be great if you rate and follow us on iTunes or the podcast app. It's
3: all weird, for I guess,
2: just so that's tough. <laughs> I
5: have to beg you to do these weird touch things and so pray to our tech overlords <laughs> and beg them to give us their algorithms Let's <laughs> the
2: Uh, I am now in Seattle. I just had a great weekend. Um, it's part of a month-long series called Red May, and I was invited to speak on Sunday after the Marxathon, We talked about Althusser and the Fragmenton Machines and marched around uh, Capitol Hill in Seattle with red flags. It was a long weekend. Um, I think everybody's pretty tired after it, but this is just one of four weekends, like 25 events. I had to interview the organizer of it, Philip Wallstetter. So why don't you tell me a little bit about Red May and how you came to organize it? I've basically
3: uh, been involved producing kind of uh, doing art events. Uh, I had a kind of part of a situationist surrealist group called Invisible Seattle, uh, which combined sort of guerrilla art uh, with interventions in politics, but in a a theoretically very ungrounded way. Uh, we were against things like developers, and we were anti-imperialist, but uh, never having read Capital at the time, I had no sense of what what the force that was uh, essentially uh, deploying itself throughout the world, what kind of system we were part of, what the totality was, uh, and the financial crisis kind of brought that home, and uh, I had been impressed by... Uh, uh, Conferences like uh, historical materialism was putting on in various places. They were, of course, geared to academics, and I was thinking we need a left public sphere where all of the good work on the kind of Marx research project into capitalism uh, that's going on can at least be presented in terms that are accessible uh, to people who just walk in and are kind of asking, well, whoa, what are capital flows doing to my city and why are the rents going up and so forth? Uh, And the idea was to mix that sort of month-long teach-in with a kind of guerrilla art festival. Uh, So the first two years we had curators uh, uh, doing kind of interesting stuff. We had a a guerrilla event in uh, the Seattle Public Library, which was designed by Rem Koolhaas. and has this wonderful fourth floor that looks like the space station in 2001 but painted red. So we always wanted to do an event in there and we, uh, we did something called Red Labyrinth where we treated it as a, the labyrinth of capitalism that we had to get out of. We all wore red masks and walked through it and th- we put a Minotaur in the labyrinth and filmed the whole thing. So, you know, there are things like that that go on during the month and, and uh, we all carry, ar- carry around red flags and uh, the red flags have nothing on them and... Uh, uh, they, they form a kind of a, 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 a blank slate upon which people can project whatever form of left activity or left horror if they're looking at it from outside uh, that uh, they want. And, and our, the way we phrase it is we ask people to take a vacation from capitalism for a month, uh, uh, to pretend for a month that the market is not the solution to the problems that the market creates. Uh, uh, We want people to uh, live in the red, to eat red food, to uh, wear red clothes, uh, uh, to read Karl Marx and to live prodigally as if there's no tomorrow. So that's the kind of premise
2: of it. And um, so yesterday was this Marxathon, so it was a lot of sort of technical classes on Marx and Marxist thinkers. Um, Then leading into me talking about passatism, which was, I think, a nice kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, it wasn't a joke, but it was a comical chaser. Yeah, it was a nice, uh, fun dessert. Uh, I think that kind of sums up the premise of the the month. It's not just this, you know, dry academic or, uh, you know, it's not just lectures on the current political moment from activists. It's not just art and public events. It's a combination of different things designed to foster a culture and, and build a, a small group of people interested in acting together. Um, and one of the things that you do is a, a Communist Coming Out Day. Do you want to describe that?
3: Oh, uh, we had a, I have an event called Coming Out Communist uh, at a bar. Uh, and the premise is essentially you didn't come out of the womb as a communist or a socialist or an anarchist, whatever you are. Uh, your parents probably were not of that, uh, any of those stripes unless, of course, you were a red diaper baby, which is becoming rarer and rarer. And you probably didn't get encouraged to go in that direction in school. Uh, somewhere along the way, you found yourself uh, with elders on what's called the far left. Uh, and yet... Uh, you still have relations with y- your parents, maybe, and you still see friends from high school. So the question is, how do you negotiate uh, the new self that you become with the way they remember you? I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing very interesting stories from people. Uh, so I, I want to ask
2: two more questions that maybe will spiral into some other questions. Uh, first, you know, Seattle has this long history of socialist struggle, the, the famous general strike of... 1919. 1919. Of course, the WTO riots. I'm sure some things happened in between (laughs) those 80 years, but uh, today it's at the hotbed of the the struggle against Amazon and other big corporations. So maybe you can just give give an overview of what's going on politically in Seattle.
3: Well, I'll start I'll start with the right because that's uh, uh, the uh, Amazon has upped its role in local politics. Big time in the last two years. Uh, they'd never given to a local election before, but they gave 300000 to the mayor and got the mayoral election and got the mayor they want. Now, it was announced in the paper, after they gave another $300,000, uh, that the Chamber of Commerce Com- 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 is collecting big time from local donors to try to kick out the progressive members of the council. Uh, and they're doing this openly. And you know, one would think that uh, uh, this n- naked effort to buy an election would inspire disgust in the voters. But uh, with their ability to kind of fine tune their message about bringing Seattle where things are civil again, uh, as opposed to having vulgarians uh, like uh, Shama Suwant uh, raise a shrill voice for things like $15 an hour. I mean, these people are trying literally to to buy back the city. And it's very, very hard because uh, they have a lot of support among people who work for them. I mean, there are, of course, great, there's a great uh, group of left tech people. But people who have come to town, uh, six-figure salaries and can't find uh, apartments and so on, developers to build a lot that they can afford, you know, and me- meantime, the newspaper is uh, yesterday, there was uh, uh, they're always publishing suggestions as to where the people who formerly lived in Seattle can go now that they can't afford it, and it, uh, one of them began, if you don't have a BA degree in Seattle, you probably can't afford to live here, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity in Toledo and uh, Spokane, and what's interesting about this is, of course, that for a long time seattle prided itself on being a working-class town basically of loggers and fishermen and sort of a swedish ancestry and there were, uh, even when this had disappeared to a certain degree when it became tied up with boeing uh, you still had people who were writing uh, uh... pay-ins to the working class and and the ordinary person I, in the columnists in the newspaper uh... and even in a guy named iver hagland who owned the Restaurants around here, and was a folk singer, and was an IWW guy in the 30s, I think. And uh, uh, the notion that people now in the paper can sort of say, you know what, this is a city where there's an admissions test. If you don't have a BA, you don't qualify to live here. Is literally amazing, given the city's past. Not that people should be pushing for it. Not that capital should be pushing it for it. That's not what's amazing. It's that somebody can put out something that's so tone-deaf to the history of the city, and no one will object. That's the, that's the problem. No one says, no one pleases this guy's tone and says, you realize what this guy is saying.
2: We had Sam Stein on last week, and I, Sam Stein also spoke here at Red May. So uh, how do you think that fits into a, a, a kind of tangible struggle uh, today for people who live in cities and don't want to see them just become...
3: Five tums of oligarchs. You know, I mean, there are two dates that are important in the configuration of cities. One is, uh, of course, uh, post-war with the housing boom and redlining, which gave us the shape of our, our cities where all the housing was white. But another one is 2011, when Goldman Sachs or somebody said the place to park your money in is real estate, and particularly North American coastal real estate. Because no one wants to invest long-term in any kind of company. And uh, most uh, the stock market is going on fumes and uh, announcements. And no one really can predict how long that's going to go or not. You know, so for people who are looking for safety, that's where it is. So there's been, there's been a huge amount of capital flowing into real estate. And what's interesting about it is you can f- read about it in the Financial Times, which is a, a good source for... where capital is going in the world, but you won't read about it in the local papers. When this happened in Vancouver, uh, it took about eight years before anybody acknowledged that there was money coming in from outside that was driving up the prices. Uh, uh, People would tell city officials and say, no, no, it's just supply and demand, you know, something like that. And the big problem, of course, is that when people invoke the law of supply and demand, They're invoking the idea that there are a certain number of houses and there are a certain number of people looking for them. There are not enough houses for all the people looking for them. But when you upzone and build all those houses, eventually the rents are going to come down because uh, there will be uh, fewer people than the housing that's offered. Except it's not people that are looking for houses. It's dollars looking for real estate. And the amount of accumulated dollars... Uh, that exist offshore in the world is literally phenomenal. We've had, David Harvey would say, we've had an over-accumulation crisis. You know, capital is looking for good deals. It's looking for returns, and it's very, very hard to find. So until you deal with that, you know, you're going to have a situation where a number of the cities become kind of Elysium zones, which are only for the rich and for the absence, uh, the pied terres you know.
2: Well, it sounds like that's a real NIMBY attitude.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's it. Uh, the, you don't want Elysium in your backyard? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I think the important thing is to, uh, what we need to do is build affordable public housing. The notion of letting p- public-private partnerships do that, where you let developers loose... To make a profit with a uh, a public uh, benefit coming from it is, the more you look at the public benefits that were supposed to come, uh, they're they're very skimpy. Uh, plus, what you get with it, uh, you know, enormous traffic and you know enormous pressures for everybody who's living in a particular city to migrate to the to the Rust Belt where it's affordable, or to retire uh, uh, to Costa Rica or to Mexico or. Uh, to uh, buy a van and go from camping ground to camping. ground. You literally all of these suggestions of what retirees should do you know so uh, public housing, public housing public housing you know S- something to do uh, land, land speculation has to be attacked directly you know and there's no unfortunately there's no way to regulate that within capitalism we need we need to move beyond capitalism and on the argument that we have to ameliorate the problems of housing for the homeless and we do have to do whatever it will take to get people into homes but uh, to let the private sector be the force that leads after 30 years of neoliberalism is insane you know resistances against landlords occupations uh, squatting community land trusts everything that uh, you know and as much public housing as you can extort out of the city but the long term is, uh, you know, capitalism's going to go. I mean, uh. oh,
2: well, I think w- w- what you mentioned—occupation, squatting, land trusts—you know, uh, sweat equity and all this stuff—these were solutions in the '70s and '80s, and they're not solutions now. So we don't have the same kind of pressure valve of, well, if you if you can't afford it, maybe you can buy this cheap building and fix it up or squat it you know you can't do that anymore the solution now is leave
3: it's unsustainable I mean it seems like it's absolutely unsustainable they made it impossible for the people who are keep the city going the workforce to live anywhere near it I mean a lot of a lot of people who are working for these companies like Walmart or or Amazon warehouses are living in in, in cars and uh, you know uh, I can't predict at what point there will be an eruption or how long, how long this can go on, but it just seems that it can't go on forever. So uh, shifting gears,
2: this, this, this is going to be the last interview on a podcast. Uh, and The first two interviews were, took place in, in Cuba uh, with an anarchist group there and with a, um, uh, a gentleman from Venezuela. Um, so September 11th, you were in Chile on September 11th, 1973 when uh, Pinochet overthrew Allende, and I, a lot of people are thinking about that day and the chain of events that it started uh, in the context of what's going on in South America now. Uh, so I, I guess, what, what were you doing there? What was it like, and how do you... Uh, what, 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 what kind of uh, comparisons do you see with the, the current situation in Venezuela? Well,
3: there are a lot of uh, lessons... Uh, uh, with the current comparisons with the current situation in Venezuela. Uh, what happened in Chile quickly was that when Allende was elected the right was in total disarray and the left was unified. They would come together in the sort of popular unity. At the time of the coup the right was extraordinarily strong and unified and the left had divided itself over line struggles. But how did the... How did the uh, Left. How did the right become so organized? Uh, The the typical story is the CIA did it and they threw in a lot of money. But that's not in fact what happened. In the beginning, when the CIA threw money down into Chile, they had no idea where to put it because the traditional right parties had collapsed. Uh, Their idea was somehow to uh, uh, force uh, uh, a re-election and have Eduardo Frey, who was the Christian Democrat, become the centrist, become uh, a ruler again. If you look at the ITT papers you'll see that. Uh, But that strategy wasn't going to cut it with the right because Frey was the person who introduced agrarian reform which saw the expropriation of uh, their fundos, this kind of seniorial ruling class. So what happened is there became uh, they had a genius organizer by the name of Jaime Guzman at the Universidad Catolica who formed what he called the Gremial Movement, uh, where he he realized that the Marxists were not to be beaten by a political party, but you needed your own grassroots movement. So this was the beginning of the kind of faux-grass... the grassroots faux-democracy movement, uh, which involved women from the uh, uh, Barrio Alto with empty pots, students from exclusive universities, the Universitat Catolica in the street, not truck drivers, but the truck owners' union, because they, essentially they were small businessmen and dryers who owned their union, it wasn't a sort of union of workers. And this large combination of uh, uh, street demonstrations that had never actually occurred on the right, right populism, let's say, before, yeah, sorry, and uh, it had a huge effect in bringing the country to a standstill, particularly because Chile, if you look at it geographically, is this long, thin country with one main road where things can easily be blown up and stopped, and one railroad. Uh, So, one of the things that happened is uh, the right-wing fascist group, Patria Libertad, was supplied with explosives and training by the Chilean Navy, which is the most uh, uh, reactionary of services. And... uh, when Allende was talking to the nation in August about the wave of terrorism, there was a blackout suddenly during the uh, address because, t- because high tension towers had been blown up. Well, if you remember in Venezuela, we've been dealing with a blackout, then we've been dealing with the street demonstrations. The model for these things was created in Chile. It can be cloned afterwards. You know that it was an American cyber attack that caused. The devastation that that blackout is causing in Venezuela. I mean, think of all the hospitals. Uh, think think of all the hospitals uh, that can't, uh, uh, which suddenly turn off uh, world electricity. What that does, and so forth. Uh, uh, so this combination of a movement, uh, Guaido's movement in Venezuela, which is led by you know these sort of white members of the the whiter the, the wider cast of Venezuela, if you just look at the pictures of them all getting together, you can see that there's a racialized component to this, too. Uh, they want to get back the power they had during the years of uh, the, the boom years of the uh, 80s and 90s before Chavez and so forth. Uh, now, this is to say nothing about Maduro as a ruler. Uh, Maduro is certainly not Allende, but the model for the coup against Venezuela is one that was developed in Chile. It wasn't imposed by the CIA down there. It was created by the creativity of the the Chilean right and funded by the CIA. But the CIA, obviously American intelligence agencies know a good thing when they see it. So it was so successful in Chile that it's now been exported to Venezuela.
2: Yeah, and I'd like to hear some of your on-the-ground experience.
3: I was... uh, I traveled from Colombia to Chile for about a month, from '72 to '73. Uh, I, Colombia, the country. Colombia, the country. Yes, uh, and I went to. Uh, uh, I went down there to. It was basically the equivalent of the roads in Nepal, except it was the Pan-American Highway. Okay. I took. Uh, I backpacked down, uh, climbed mountains in Ecuador, and uh, you know hung out in Peru, and uh, I got to Chile. Uh, Everything was going great. Who could have imagined something
2: bad would happen?
3: I got to Chile uh, a month before the coup and a month afterwards. Now, it's it's better to refer to the coup as the coup de grace rather than uh, uh, the the initiation of something because for the last five weeks, beginning with a truck strike on uh, July 27th, uh, the country was in a state of a civil war. Uh, uh, you know, there there were... Every day, things were blown up. Uh, Various elements of the military had seceded from the Republic and literally were not obeying laws uh, and were, uh, for example, imprisoning. Uh, They imprisoned sailors and workers and refused to comply with the uh, ordinary procedures of justice, which would allow lawyers to see them. Uh, not just sabotage but in literally the ref- refusal to comply with the law by many of the uh, authorities so so it came in a time of turmoil uh, at the same time uh, I had one of those great experiences where you, you you had a sense of what Chile was in the beginning uh, and what, uh, when Allende had been elected I was uh, there was a train in the Desert from Antofagasta to Seattle, that, I mean, sorry, to <laughs> <laughs> Antofagasta to Santiago that took uh, three whole days, 72 hours to go. It was an old to, to to arrive at its destination. It was an old train. It was called the Longino because it was so long, and the seats were made of hard wood. It was the most uncomfortable thing. It was so, such a ridiculous voyage that uh, people would bring wine, guitars, sleep on the floor. And, uh, you know, w- w- we sang our way all through the desert with the Nueva Cancion Chilena with these Bolivian and Chilean students. And y- you got a sense of this, this kind of festival of the left uh, that, that uh, Chile was in the beginning and that they were trying to keep alive. You know, you songs like... Paralo, paralo, el voz del pueblo que lo plantea Salvador. Paralo, paralo, paramos el conspirador. And I hear these songs in my head all the time, uh, you know, when I when I think of the, the place. So uh, uh, one of the persons I met on the train, this, this Bolivian guy was at Universidad Tecnica. I ran into him in the street. Where were you going? He said he was going to do some... Uh, trabajo voluntario, which everybody was trying to keep the distribution network going. So uh, I found myself at a railroad station unloading 40-pound sacks of flour with all these other people from around the world. I mean, this this is sort of, you know, these are the kind of high points, uh, the low points, uh, where I had gone south uh, to Puerto Montt, uh, and when I tried to go back to Santiago, the uh, railway station, the the railroad had been attacked. This is about eight days before the coup. And uh, there was no service between the, nor- the south of Chile and the north of uh, Chile for uh, five days. The country was literally cut in half. And they had blown up all the, these bridges and tracks or, you know, uh, uh, and we, I, we got on the train heading back and people have been waiting and camping out in the stations for five days so that when you stopped at each station, it was like rush hour uh, in a New York subway. Everybody, everybody just crammed in. And when we were one third of the way back to Santiago, the place, the the cars were all full up. So they never stopped again. And as they drive, uh, as, as they uh, Hurdle through these stations. You'd see all these people have been re- waiting for five days. I uh, thought the train was coming, would be shaking their fists and say, Carajo, why stop for us, you know? And uh, so here we are in an, a New York subway for like 12 hours of rush hour till we finally get to this plane and they stop. The train stops and the conductor comes in and says, Uh... uh we have one more bridge to cross, Is the bridge at Rio Claro, unfortunately it hasn't been repaired yet. So what we're going to do is we're all going to get off the train, and we're going to walk across the bridge, and then there's another train coming from Santiago that will pick you up and take you to Santiago. So like, you know, four, six hundred people get off this train, walking in this narrow channel up to the bridge, and when we get to the bridge and started to walk over, the central part of the bridge, this little eight-foot section, is gone. There's nothing but space there, and they've put on over it this kind of wooden board with—I uh, don't know. I mean, it, it was wood atop of some sort of steel uh, ramp that connected one side to the other. There were no. Uh, uh, there were no. Railings to hold on to when you went across. And, of course, uh, you know, I mean, I had, I was a mountain climber, so I was used to walking over things like that. But there were these 80-year-old women carrying suitcases, and I was thinking, it's just amazing that no one going across this thing one by one fell into the river. It was insane. And the bridge was damaged by, like, a right-wing attack? Yes. No, it was blown up. Yeah, I mean, they, they the navy. The Navy basically supplied explosives to Patria Libertad, the right-wing fascist movement, and they supplied the training, too. And not only that, one of the admirals, Ismael Huerta, who later became the uh, Junta's uh, representative to the United Nations, offered his house uh, to be blown up, so they could blame it on the leftists, because their whole thing was, their whole story was there were 14,000 Cubans in the country that were planning a coup.
2: Sounds familiar.
3: It was called Plan Z, which they Uh, broke out afterwards. They said uh, this coup was a a defensive coup. Uh, Basically, uh, the left was planning a coup uh, with Cubans where they were going to kill Allende. Uh, And in some versions, they said Allende had authorized a coup that was going to kill himself. It was crazy. It was crazy. This thing was written up. uh, People compare it to the protocols of the elders of Zion. So, uh, you know... uh, by the time the coup had happened, every single, ar- all the armed forces, all of the leaders who were constitutionalists had been purged. And it was, uh, it was a unanimous coup. The uh, left had talked about splitting the military, and it assumed that when there would be a coup, the loyal uh, soldiers of the military would fight with the left. And, uh, but that didn't happen. Now, could that have happened? Well, it, it happened in Venezuela with the first coup against Chavez. Uh, and and it, that's more or less a model of how you, you stop a coup. What happened first was officers and some people from the elite and the oligarchy took over and then immediately they announced all their ideas about closing Congress and all of the kind of repression that the right wanted to put in. You know, the so-called it, it ran under the banner of democracy. But the first thing they did was immediately there uh, in, in, in Venezuela, as I understand it, uh, there was a huge uh, gathering of uh, uh, people in uh, the squares, and uh, loyal military came back and essentially imprisoned. Uh, the people who had temporarily succeeded in imprisoning Chavez, that could have happened with Allende. It w- um, and it's very interesting when c- one considers what the left strategies were at the time. There were really only two that were promoted. One was this notion uh, of arming the people, about passing passing out rifles to the uh, the industrial there were there were kind of industrial Soviets called cordones and so forth. And, and the idea was uh, Allende failed to uh, 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 failed to uh, let these things be passed out. So that's why he was overthrown. The policy that Allende followed was to depend on the head of the army, General Prats, to keep everybody in the army loyal and to stay within the Constitution. Well, that clearly failed. But there was actually another policy... Um, um. Uh, which Allende didn't want to follow because he was afraid it might lead to a civil war uh, uh, as the model of the Spanish Civil War, the three years of fighting uh, was ever in his mind and, and that policy was uh, at the point where they knew which generals were loyal and which were disloyal. They kn- There kn- were a certain number of generals who were obviously disloyal uh, uh, and uh, for example All of the wives of these generals protested at the house of the commander-in-chief, Carlos Prats, who was a constitutionalist, that they all wanted to get out. And the very fact that anybody's wife was there, essentially acting as a proxy for these generals, was a sign that these people were mutinous. They were mutineers. Uh, Allende had the power to dismiss these people, retire them from the service. Uh, That would have provoked a coup, probably, but it wouldn't have been the massive unified coup that happened fifteen days later it would have been a disorganized coup and might have in fact resulted in exactly what happened with Chavez that a few of these people would have started the coup and the rest of the army would have come back following some loyal officers that to me was the only possible out uh... at that time Um, so uh but it's it's not a generalized lesson. it's just that historically specific moment in Chile. you know it's, There's never a sort of point where either armed struggle or uh, parliamentary struggle is definitively superior to anything else as a universal tactic. I mean it all depends on the moment.
2: Yeah, from my limited understanding of the situation, it doesn't seem like you can really. Uh, conclusively make an argument over what should have happened or you know how where Allende went wrong I, I even I forgot where I read this, but I remember reading that in the months leading up to the coup, when it seems you know likely something like that was going to happen, Allende met uh with some the Soviet ambassador, I think he might have even gone to Moscow and, and said uh, there's going to be a coup soon. Can you help me out? Is there anything you can do? And the Soviets concluded no, we can't. You're screwed. (laughs) We're not going to be able to help you. There's nothing we can do to stop this. I I don't know if you're familiar with that story.
3: Yeah, Allende, uh, basically, despite all of the uh, notions about Allende being a bridgehead for Russia in the Western Hemisphere that you'd hear from Kissinger and Nixon and so forth, the Russians were interested in detente at the time. They were very, very careful about their involvement outside of their immediate sphere, and they were very, they gave very limited aid to Allende. Uh, the the aid that he got, uh, and particularly the moral uh, and enthusiastic aid, was from Cuba. Uh, not as the right wing suggested uh, as an attempt for Cuba to take over the country, and uh, which was what they were pushing. But, for example, uh, in 1970, when the commander of the, chief of the armed services, General Rene Schneider, was assassinated uh, by right-wing terrorists with guns provided by the CIA, Uh, there were also plots to assassinate Allende. And this this had never happened in Chile before, in modern Chile. Uh, And uh, the question was, how how was Allende going to be protected? And uh, uh, nobody was sure who in the police or the Carabineros were loyal, uh, and certainly in some of the armed services. So they, they sent uh, members of MIR to Cuba to be trained in protection, to become a kind of secret service. And they were called the grupos de amigos personales, the GAP, like the clothing store. Uh, uh, the GAP were interpreted as a kind of a militaristic cat's paw for Cuba, where in fact they were an attempt to... Uh, uh, thwart the murderous violence of the right wing, which had already deployed itself during the uh, agrarian reform uh, and uh in addition uh you know the Cuban embassy was always uh, uh, the Cubans were there 's a famous line from someone uh, maybe Fidel says this he said you know we can 't really run an economy very well, but we're terrific fighters, you know, and when you think of the Cubans in Africa and, the, and the help they extended to uh, uh, Nelson Mandela to the point where he invited Fidel to the uh, uh, to his inauguration uh, uh, the Cubans in Chile were famous for many of them saying I want to, uh, when the coup is happening, I will stay and I will fight and die beside you, you know, to defend your government and, and eventually, you know they were sent out, but some of them did die. Again, not to uh, not to intervene in uh, Chilean politics, but to help defend a legitimate government. In other words, they fulfilled the role in the world as protectors of a democracy that the U.S. always claims when it entered Vietnam or other things. But the Cubans really did it in two cases.
2: Now it's almost refreshing now that Trump doesn't talk about democracy the way that all the other, you know, Obama and Bush and Clinton had, you know, going back decades, all the presidents had to say that they defend a democracy while, you know, supporting coups and democracies that, that didn't like the outcome. Trump just says now, we just want these leaders to get on the same page as us, and he has nothing but respect for uh, Kim Jong-un. And um, he, he even he was talking about uh, Iran the same way, like, Iran, Iran's great. Iran could be great. They just have to not have nuclear weapons or, you know, it's nonsense, whatever he's saying. But he's not pretending that Iran needs to be more democratic in some fashion.
3: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that is really refreshing. Uh, There's nothing worse than hearing the Cold War liberals talk about bringing democracy, or even neocons like Elliot Abrams and so forth. So
2: So thank you so much for that uh, slice of your life and slice of uh, socialist history. What, so uh, if listeners want to check out Red May, they should come out before the end of the month, so there will still be some events left. Uh, l- let them know how they can learn more.
3: Uh, the easiest way is to go to www.redmayseattle.org. You can see uh, what we're doing. And if you can't come out, we have Red May TV, uh, which has the panels filmed, uh, not only from this year, but uh, uh, from the first year and the second year, we have some good panels. Uh, so check it out. Thanks, and hopefully I'll be back next year,
2: hopefully with a book to present. And uh, next year I'll interview you again, and, and we can talk about another chapter of your life in uh, Hollywood. And we can hear about your your friendship with the historical dude.
3: The dude the bugs.